So I want to uh, talk tonight about a topic that's quite familiar to anybody who's done retreats, which is the topic of the five hindrances. Um, and I think it's talked about so much, of course, because it is such a familiar experience. The five hindrances are grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And I, for one, the first time I heard this list, when I was first practicing meditation in India, I was tremendously relieved. It somehow made it not so personal that I had been sitting there overcome by grasping aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, but made it more of a known phenomenon and something that um, had been talked about for 2,500 years. But before I get into that more specifically, I wanted to say a little bit more about mindfulness. Because whatever these experiences are that may come to be, it's considered to be mindfulness that is uh, the way to work with them. It's not the only way to work with them, but it's like the primary way to work with them. Another aspect of mindfulness we haven't really maybe talked about so much is the fact that it's a relational quality. It's knowing what's happening. It's having a degree of clarity, recognition about what's happening, and it's having an awareness that is not holding on, is not pushing away, is not going to sleep, is not deluded, is not misidentifying with what's happening. It's about how we are relating in every moment to every experience. And so there's there's an aspect of mindfulness which really replicates a kind of overarching theme in the practice, which is about balance. The idea being that our work really in some way is to work toward greater and greater balance, out of which there will be emerging insight, understanding, wisdom, love, compassion, many good things. We don't actually reify those qualities and go after them, you know, and try to, like, get them um, and hold them and somehow claim them as ours, but rather work toward greater balance and see as, as these different aspects of our being actually do emerge and are nurtured and, and brought forth so there are lots of ways that balance is talked about, balance between tranquility and energy, which I'll talk more about tonight, balance between love and compassion for ourselves and love and compassion for others, balance between the compassionate sense of wanting to make a difference and having some equanimity or peace and saying, yeah, this is how things actually are right now and many more ways in which we work with balance. And mindfulness itself is almost like inherently balanced because it's seeing what's going on without either being submerged and overcome or defined by what's going on on the one side. And on the other side, it's not rejecting and hateful and ashamed and embarrassed and trying to thwart what's going on. So there's a place in the middle we're not falling into it, we're not pulling back or separating or distancing ourselves from our experience in the moment. The place in the middle doesn't sound that exciting, but it's pretty exciting actually. It's almost like that is the place from which creativity can 
emerge because we're not constrained and we're also not overwhelmed. Uh, Joseph described it as spacious, and it is spacious. It's also connected. It's also, in its own way, compassionate or kind. So we say that mindfulness doesn't take the shape of what it's watching, which means it can go anywhere. We can be mindful of serene and peaceful and lovely experience. We can be mindful of very kind of disjointed, turbulent, hurtful experience. Because the nature of mindfulness is not going to change. It's that balanced awareness that can go anywhere. And that's why it's considered the basis of freedom. If we define, say, good meditation practice as a particular state, you know, very deep peace or um, extraordinary bliss. I mean, those are nice states. But as conditioned states, they come and go. And if our practice is based on somehow attaining them, keeping them, holding them through all circumstance, only to watch them fade, then it becomes a, a practice which is really a life that is based on a lot of fear and resentment. Like, how dare you call me when I was on the verge of bliss? You know, or I use the example sometimes of, you know, if you live in New York City and and people tell me a lot, because I spend a lot of time in New York City, well, I couldn't meditate because it was too noisy. And so you can just imagine somebody thinking in New York, well, I better move into the closet you know, so they set up like a kind of shrine in the closet and, um, you know, put in a zafu and a zabitan and like make sure the, the zabitan, which is this flat cushion, you know, is, is completely smooth. You know, nothing irritating, nothing folded over. And you sit and you're just like completely composed. And then you hear the sound of the water in the pipes. And you think, oh, no. And then, you know, maybe you have to go out and buy those kind of earphones that people wear in airport tarmacs, you know, and you're sitting there, like, afraid of sound. So, in contrast to that, we consider mindfulness the basis of freedom. It's not that we don't try to create conditions for quiet, for serenity, for peace. I mean, here we are, right? But essentially, we have a kind of conviction that mindfulness can go anywhere. And so... There doesn't have to be that kind of fear, that sense of you know, your life getting smaller and smaller and smaller because you cannot be present and okay with some condition or another because, in fact, we can. So that's really an essential understanding as we look at these various states that so often come in our practice because, ironically, what it's saying is that we can have a state of tremendous fear or anger, or grasping come up in our experience and be with it without grasping anger or fear toward it. And this is something that um, I think it was Joseph who talked about earlier in the retreat, that what is happening is much less important than how we are with what is happening. And this becomes the essential point of the practice. 
we don't have to be afraid of our own experience. We don't have to resent it. We don't have to compare it to something that actually is not happening. How we are with it is, is really the question. Okay, so they're called hindrances not because they're inherently bad or loathsome or terrible or because we are bad or loathsome or terrible when they arise, even if they arise frequently, uh, but because, first of all, they're seductive. And if we get lost in them, then there tend to be certain distortions of perception, certain what we would call wrong view, um, certain kinds of um, ideas or worldviews that are distorted, that are unrealistic. Um, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering in getting lost in them. There's uh, often a kind of tunnel vision as they restrict our world according to what they tend to have us see and what they tend to have us overlook. And uh, they're also, in a way, states of some imbalance. So the primary way, as I said, we work with them is to use mindfulness. And there are also ways of bringing more balance into the situation, depending on the particular hindrance. There might be different ways that we work to, to bring them more into balance. And if I don't get a chance to talk about that tonight, I'll talk about it tomorrow morning when we go on with the instructions. So the hindrances are tempting we can very easily get overcome by them. They become the way we see things. We can also fight them terribly and, and be in a sort of embattled mentality uh, with a tremendous amount of anger and fear, which is also, it's just a struggle. It's not like a successful way of, of working with them or dealing with them. So we look for the place in the middle. The first hindrance is grasping um, or clinging. It's, you know, and these words are, are very difficult sometimes to, to establish clarity with. It doesn't mean aspiration. It doesn't mean intention. It doesn't even mean wanting in a, a conventional sense. Um, the idea of grasping or clinging or attachment is that there's a certain element of fixation in it. And there's also quite a bit of poignancy, I think, in it, because what we are fixated on is either what we don't have or we are fixated on trying to assume control over something or someone so that it doesn't change, so that it doesn't alter, so that our, our contentment or, or satisfaction doesn't shift. We may try to hold on to an experience, to a person, and in that sense, a person becomes an object, you know, to some kind of object. It's the nature of grasping that the world gets really tight and constrained around something. So, you know, there's this very famous saying in India that when a pickpocket meets a saint, they see only the saint's pockets. You know, and of course we want things, and aspiration is a tremendous thing. Um, I think, if anything, we live in a time of kind of blunted aspiration, where we can't even imagine what a human being might be capable of or what a society, you know, might look like. 
so it's not that. It's really that kind of holding. And the Buddha said it very cogently, I think, in a, a very homey kind of example when he said, if you hold on tightly to that which must inevitably change, it's like holding on tightly to a revolving wheel. At some point in the cycle, you are bound to get run over. You know, the, the contrasting state isn't apathy and it isn't disdain and it isn't not caring, but it's a kind of balance that's a full and complete experience without that extra thing that we do. You know, so my early practice, as an example, well, my earliest practice was very painful um, and difficult, but after some time, things changed, and I would sit and meditate, and I would feel all of these delightful feelings, and it would be so wonderful, and I'd feel like I was floating in the air, and all these serene and peaceful mind states, and I was living in India at the time, and I thought, oh, good. It's going to be wonderful spending the entire rest of my life in just this state, and you know, I had no intentions of coming back, but I knew I'd come back eventually to visit. And, and I thought of myself maybe 10 years from that point floating down the streets of New York, you know, with a beatific smile and kind of wearing my white sari. And, but what would happen would be, you know, 20 minutes into the experience or 30 minutes into the experience, my back would start hurting or I'd get a little sleepy or something would shift and it would go away. And every time I would blame myself, you know, what did I do wrong that made that experience go away? But it actually wasn't that I had done anything wrong. It's just that things go away. They're changing conditions, shifting circumstances. It's not that, you know, the Buddha, for example, is saying don't enjoy it, but we can enjoy it with a different kind of wisdom. So we're not actually clutching like, oh, no, what if it changes? I see a shift, I've got to hold on. And it's a much bigger kind of perspective which opens the door for not only joy but a, a great deal of loving kindness. When we fixate, then I think we are uh, inevitably afraid in some way, even if it seems to be out of grasping. And it's very rare for us to look at the nature of that feeling, which is part of the mindfulness training. You know, um, I don't know how many of you are from New York City, but there was a while in New York when if you were driving up the West Side Highway, there, there were always a series of billboards. And there was a while where it was just like billboard after billboard after billboard, which was only a picture of a car and one word on it, crave. And you just drive up and you'd see like crave, crave, crave. And I used to say by the time I got uptown, I really wanted that car. And that's sort of how we are, you know? It's like we're, uh, we receive so many messages that we do not have enough and we are not enough, and if only I had this and if only I had that, and we crave. But really, do we need that? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But the sort of um, conditioned element of that, that kind of almost uh, obsessive wanting 
is something that's just manufactured. So what happens when we really look at our experience? To see, is that the only thing in the universe that's ever going to make me happy, in fact? Like it says in the ad? Or maybe not. You know, so it's a very interesting prospect. We don't, lost in that state, usually look at the nature of it. We look at the object. So if you really want that car, which I think is a Honda, by the way, (laughs) you know, mostly we think, well, should I get that color or should I get that color or should I get those kind of tires or what kind of sound system? It's very rare in that moment to turn our attention back on itself and say, what does it feel like to want something so much? What does craving feel like? What does grasping feel like? What is its nature? That's really what we're doing in the practice. So that's the the first of the hindrances. The second is aversion, which is anger and fear. And in the Buddhist psychology, as many of you know, this is these are the same state, anger and fear, with two different forms. Anger being the expressive, energized outgoing form, fear being the like held in, frozen, imploding form. But they're the same state of trying to strike out against what's happening, declare it to be untrue, push it away, make it go away, try to pretend it's not really so. And again, of course, you know, it's not that we're talking about flattening out all response so that there's only indifference or a kind of not caring, but to take a very good look at the nature of anger. What's its energy? What's its limitation? Here, too, anger, when we are lost in it, the Buddha compared it to a forest fire which burns up its own support. It can leave us devastated. It can leave us also like a forest fire very far from where we want to be. The positive part of it is the energy because it's not complacent, it's not indifferent, actually. But the negative part of it, in a way, is like not only the pain of it and the consequence of acting in it, but again, it's a kind of deluded quality that comes with the tunnel vision of it. The story I usually tell about that in describing it is uh, from a long time ago, actually, um, when... Uh, I first got on email, which I've been on every single second of my life since. (laughs) Um, But I was uh, next door and uh, working on something, and I had a computer, desktop computer, and um, I got on email to avoid writing what I was supposed to be writing, and Uh, Somebody wrote to me and said, I don't understand what the problem is with anger. And I wrote back and I said, well, one way of seeing it is that the problem with anger, and this isn't feeling anger, it's being lost or overcome by anger. One way of seeing the problem is that when we are lost in anger, we just put people in a box. you know. And then I got offline and I was working on whatever it was I was writing. And something went terribly wrong in the relationship between my computer and my printer, and I got really angry. And I got down on my hands and knees, and I was like pulling out plugs and pushing in other plugs, and 
The first person I was angry at was our computer assistant. We didn't have the phrase IT then. Um, I was really angry at him because he was in Hawaii on vacation. And in that moment, I completely forgot, and this is a true story, that the reason he was in Hawaii on vacation is because I decided he needed a vacation. And I had gone to the airport and used my frequent flyer miles to send him to Hawaii. But it was like gone. And I was just furious. And the next person I was really angry at was myself. You know, why are you such a klutz? Why can't you fix these things? Why are you so inept? Why can't you do it? In the meantime, I did it. But I hardly even took a breath to notice. Wow, you fixed it. You know, and I just got back up on my chair and I was working on my thing. And, and at some point I went back online and there was my original correspondent saying to me, well, I don't understand what you mean by saying that when you get lost in anger, you know, one problem is that you just put people in a box. And I wrote back and I said, well, this is what just happened. You know, it's the narrowing, it's the delusion. It's like the example I use a lot in teaching loving-kindness practice is what if you are the kind of person who, let's just say you have the habit of looking back at your day, at the end of the day, assessing yourself, and let's just say you're the kind of person who tends to remember only the mistake that you made that day, let's just say. So here you are at the end of the day, and all you can remember is that really stupid thing you said at lunch. You know, and you're furious at yourself. There's a certain perspective that's lost, like maybe that's not the only thing you did today. Maybe that's not the sum total of who you are and will always be. You know, there, there's that kind of collapse of possibility in the state of, of an anger. And so sometimes I describe loving-kindness practice actually as saying to yourself, anything else happened today? <laughs> Just kind of opening to, to the good, um, to the sense of care for oneself rather than just castigating oneself all of the time. You know, and that's why it's the, the opposite energy of the state of anger or fear. So here, too, the point is not to shun the anger or the fear or hate it or whatever, but to be able to look at it, not the story, not the circumstance, not the, you know, the ultimate act of revenge we are sure will work, um, but the nature of it. So I, you know, in meeting with some of you today, I talked about a time I was sitting here and I was just furious about something or other. And uh, one of our teachers from India, this man named Manindra was here teaching and he, I was complaining to him about what I was experiencing because I th- thought it should have been long gone. Um, and he said to me, this is how you should be with your anger. He said, imagine a spaceship has landed on the front lawn and these Martians come out and they come up to you and they say, what is anger? What is anger? That's how you should be with your anger. What is anger? What does it feel like in your body? What's its nature? What's the mood? How is it affecting you? It's not the same, really, as the grievance or the vengeful plan or the shame about what you're feeling. It's very curious, very alive, very connected, interested. What is anger? So that's really um, the same kind of process. The next of the hindrances 
is sleepiness or sloth and torpor. And I should say also that as common as these states are, and they are very common, sometimes they arise singly, sometimes they come in interesting combinations, uh, what we sometimes call a multiple hindrance attack. And sometimes someone has a favorite hindrance. This is my favorite hindrance. Favorite in the sense of most oft occurring. Sleepiness, um, kind of delusion, sluggishness, sloth and torpor. Uh, There are many, many reasons why it can be a prevalent experience in one's practice. Um, Sometimes it's a habitual tendency. Things are difficult. There's some tension, there's distress, difficult feeling, difficult memory, and our nearly automatic habit is to say, time to go to sleep. (laughs) Let's just take a nap, you know, I'll deal with it later. Um, And it's comforting, you know, it's a kind of cocoon that that we feel we can wrap ourselves in. But of course, it's it's very disconnected ultimately, so it's it's not very useful over the long term. Sometimes... Um, sleepiness comes because our experience is primarily neutral at any given time. As the Buddha described the nature of experience, he talked about, of course, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience, whether we're seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or smelling or experiencing things through um, idea, emotion, imagery, we experience them, we tend to experience them as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And when our experience is pleasant, we have certain challenges. When it's unpleasant, we have certain challenges. And when our experience is neutral, we tend to go to sleep. Because by and large, really, we are not trained to great subtlety. We need a kind of intensity to feel alive, even if it's intense pain. And without that um, intensity of pleasure or pain, what we really do is seek more intensity, generally speaking, rather than pay more careful attention to something that might be really subtle and, and pretty neutral. And yet we have the capacity to really come alive to all of those experiences. But in general, you know, that's not how... Uh, we've grown up, it's not how we've, we've grown. And so when things are not glorious and beautiful and they're not, we don't feel like we're on the edge, you know, of, of some very difficult experience and it may be about to break through when they're just kind of like, ah, oh, breath, you know, or sound, another breath, a step. We can easily go to sleep. And that can be a strong reason why that is coming up. Sometimes we feel a tremendous sleepiness in practice because of this imbalance between tranquility and energy. And these two um, functionally are some of the strongest qualities that we work with and try to bring into balance. Uh, Many aspects of our practice are about deepening tranquility, calm, peace, letting go, being at ease. Many are about energy, being interested, connected, investigating. And it's not always the case that these are developing in perfect balance. If the tranquil side of things is cooking along, 
at a faster rate than the energized side of things. The first thing we tend to do is to move into this state. Uh, Classically, it's called sinking mind. I call it the ooze. You just kind of ooze along, you know, and it's kind of peaceful, and you can go along for quite some time, and then finally you will fall asleep. And many meditators have spent a long time in this state. It's not bad, you know, it certainly has that element of tranquility. It just could use a better balance with the energy. This is, you know, a common state and something I experience a lot. I can remember being here once teaching, and uh, it was my turn to do that sitting uh, after breakfast that we do, you know, with the instructions. And um, I got up here and just sat down and closed my eyes for a few moments and felt my breath. And right away, I went into that ooze. And I just sort of oozed along for about 20 minutes when I had the thought, well, maybe I should do some mental noting. Actually, saying in, out, arising, falling is one of the antidotes for picking. It's one of the ways to pick up energy. So I just had that thought, or maybe, you know, I should do some mental noting. So instead of just feeling the breath, I began silently saying in, out, in, out. And it was like the clouds cleared. And I realized I was sitting in front of 100 people who'd been waiting 20 minutes for some instruction. So I didn't say anything, but at the end of the sitting, I rang the bell. And it won't happen tomorrow, I promise. But, you know, I rang the bell and I said, well, this is what just happened. You know, it's a very common state. And we do work with simply, you know, it's not... um, You don't want to disrupt the tranquility, but it's ways of picking up energy while deepening the tranquility at the same time. And sometimes we're very sleepy because we're really tired. You know, most people have awfully busy, hectic lives, and you come to a situation like this, and you stop, and you're gone. We're fatigued. We're overcome. It all comes to the surface. We're tired. And and that, I think, needs to be seen as a, a valid experience. As many of you know, um, Buddhism uh, was an oral tradition for about 300 years after the time of the Buddha. Nothing was really written down for that period of time. And so the ways that the teachings were remembered was, you know, was through memorization and often through lists, um, because that seemed to be a, a good way of of people being able to memorize it. And so there are many, many lists in, in Buddhist teaching. And there's one list about ways of dealing with sleepiness, um, which include things like open your eyes, stand up, and uh, different things we'll talk about. And I was always really kind of charmed because the last thing on the list is go to sleep. <laughs> like take a nap. And... I noted it's not the first thing on the list, but it's on the list. (laughs) You know, and all of these things are ways. Here again, you know, the first approach we might take would be to be mindful of the experience, to try to be with it, to see its nature, to see what's happening. It's tricky, you know, because it's such a low-energy state. If you feel like you're just going to go to sleep, it's probably time to bring some balance in, you know, and work with 
just trying to pick up your energy. And, and there are many ways, you know, as I, as I was saying, very simple physical ways like open your eyes, as well as some others that I'll talk about tomorrow. The next hindrance is energetically the opposite. It's restlessness. So we have grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness. Restlessness could be a state where there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of enthusiasm, there's a lot of investigation, but there's not as much tranquility as would be a better balance. And so we get more and more and more restless. We get agitated feel like you want to just jump out of your skin. And in my early practice, I, when I wasn't in terrible pain, I was asleep. And I used to hear people talk about these crazy bouts of restlessness, planning, creating, thinking. And I would be so envious. You know, I think, wow, you know, at least they're awake, you know, and there's like interesting stuff going on. And and then, of course, it happened, and I thought, oh, this doesn't feel that good, does it, actually? We can experience that kind of restlessness physically, uh, you know, where you just you want to jump out of your skin. I have a friend, uh, Joseph and I have a friend who once described sitting in a meditation hall in Sri Lanka, which was completely empty except for her, and is, I think, about the size of this room. And she'd start out on her cushion, say, in that corner. Two minutes later, she'd be so restless, she had to, like, pick it up and go to the back corner. She'd sit down. Two minutes later, she'd pick it up. She, like, hit every spot in the room. You know, she just could not bear the amount of energy moving through her body. Sometimes the experience of restlessness is not so much physical. It's, uh, it's mental, in effect. Sometimes it's about the future. We plan and plan and plan and plan and plan and plan the same thing again and again and again and again. And then when we sit next, we find we're planning it again and we're planning it again. It's almost as though um, there's this kind of feeling inside that if we can only plan something through enough, it will be secure. We'll get what we want. We can... Uh, we can be confident in some way it'll happen. And so we plan and plan and plan. But we get more and more restless as this is going on. You know, back in my lovely days of practice in India, um, those times it felt good. I had decided I was going to live in India for the entire rest of my life, which, of course, didn't happen, but... I was convinced it would. And in those days, it was quite difficult to have an extended visa. So as I would sit in meditation, I would plan about my next visa extension. I'd think, well, next year, when I need a new visa, I'll go over there because that's very close. And and they'll be really supportive of people who are meditating. And the year after that, when I need a visa extension, I'll go over there because that's very far away and nobody ever goes there. So they're bound to give me an extension. And the year after that, when I need a visa extension, I'll go over there because I heard those people are really corrupt and I'll bribe them. And then the year after that, and just then the bell would ring and the sitting would be over and I'd go out and I'd come back and I'd do it all over again. I would just do it and do it and do it. 
And finally, I said two things to myself that proved to be really useful. One was, what are you feeling right now? Because, of course, the travelogue of India was not the point, but that yearning and that insecurity and the feeling like, I'm not going to get it. It's not going to happen. Maybe it's not going to happen. You know, that, that uncertainty, that anxiety was more to the point. And so I said to myself, what are you feeling right now? Which brought me into much more direct contact with what was actually going on. The other thing I said to myself was, you're not even really in India while you're in India. All you're doing is planning on how to stay in India. Why not be in India while you're in India? And that proved to be a a really beautiful and wonderful thing to say and do because as life turned out, I didn't spend the rest of my life in India at all. And I feel I can honestly look back at that time as a time very fully lived. You know, that it was, it was such a tremendous process um, of learning and, and being and so on. So sometimes the restlessness is really pushing into the future. Agitation, worry, planning. Sometimes the restlessness, um, if mental or psychological, is really about the past. And traditionally it's felt in kind of meditation lore that the way, the common way that this will be experienced is through guilt. That our minds will go back and just naturally as a part of the process, um, there is a kind of sensitivity that people feel where there are memories that come up of hurtful things we've done or said or whatever. Times when we've like broken the harmony in a way of something, some situation, and out of nowhere, it'll appear. So once again, there's a kind of distinction that's, that can be made in the Buddhist psychology between what's called remorse and what we would call guilt. Remorse being a, a very skillful and useful acknowledgement of the pain um, we've caused or the discord or, or something not having been right. Um, there's a very beautiful saying of the Buddha's when he said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And often in this kind of recollection, there is that feeling of how little we in fact loved ourselves so that we acted in in some way that was so reckless or whatever. So it's painful. But there's also an ability to see it, to have a sense of, in effect, being able to forgive ourselves, to move on with some energy, some determination, not just to do the same thing again and again and again. So it's kind of a useful state. Guilt is considered more kind of lacerating self-hatred where we're stuck and we just go over and over and over the experience so that there's not that kind of ability to let go, to move on. There's no energy. We're just depleted by it. So it's not considered that useful or skillful state. It's more about the agitation, the restlessness, um, and the stuckness of, of the past. So my favorite story about that uh, is the story about Joseph. So I'm going to get back at him. For... It wasn't really a story about me last night. Um, and that is, uh, well, first of all, you know, again, there, it's just natural as a 
part of going within, of opening, of concentrating, and so on, that we have these kinds of memories that come up. So Joseph and I went together to Burma to practice meditation somewhere in the 80s. And the way the uh, the interview system was in Burma was the teacher, Saira Upandita, would sit in this small room, and we would go in one by one, but you would go in and sit in the back of the room while the person ahead of you was, was still speaking so that once they finished, you could move right up front. So um, the the order of the interview schedule was that Joseph was just ahead of me. So that meant for like three months, I heard everything that he was going through. It was very interesting, too. <laughs> so Ramdas was actually in front of Joseph, but he really wanted, he told me he really wanted to hear what I was going through. So he used to wait in the back of the room, pretend he was taking notes on what Upandita had told him so he could hear what I was going through. It was really kind of fun. Anyway, so I would hear Joseph you know, describe his experience. And one day he came in, and I thought from his voice he was feeling like a little down, or crestfallen or something. And, and sure enough, he said something to Upandita, like I had a really difficult experience. And um, something like uh, he had a memory of something really bad he had done, like 20 years before, 25 years before, something like that. And it, it really came up very strongly. You know, he'd done this really bad thing, and and it was so difficult to bear the, the memory of it. And uh, Upandita was speaking to him very much, you know, along the lines of what I was just saying. There's a, you know, you can have remorse without falling into guilt, and you don't need to get restless and agitated, and you can let it go and all of that. But the whole time I was sitting in the back of the room thinking, I wonder what he did. You know, it sounds so bad. He must have been really young, you know. He couldn't have been that old. Like, wow, I wonder what he did. But there we were on this silent retreat for months, and I couldn't ask him. So finally the day came, and we left Burma together, and we went to Bangkok. (laughs) And we were having dinner. And I think it was that very first night. I sort of leaned across the table, and I said, so, Joseph, that day you went in to talk to Upandita and you sounded so upset about this really terrible thing you'd done and what'd you do? And he said, oh, he was in high school and um, this young woman was turning 16 and she was having a sweet 16 party and he decided he didn't really feel like going, so he didn't go. And it turned out, this is a sad story. It turned out that not that many people went, you know, and so she was really very unhappy. And so 25 years later, out of nowhere, it came back. So I told this story once we were teaching together in California in the summer, um, and I told this story because I was giving this talk that night, and it happened to be my birthday, and the staff of the retreat center at Spirit Rock was giving me a birthday party, so I went to the birthday party after the talk, and Joseph walked in, and he said, I didn't really feel like coming. (laughs) But I figured in 25 years, I'll be sitting, minding my own business, you know, and out of nowhere, there will arise this memory. You know, so it's not unusual for that to happen and it's very instructive you know 
to uh, feel what is really very authentic pain and to be able to let it go, to be able to begin again, to be able to move on. You know, it's actually a very important experience. So that's restlessness. And then the final hindrance um, is doubt, which is also very interesting. And these, of course, arise so much in the practice because they arise so much in our lives. And so here it is. This is like our lab. You know, it's, it's the opportunity to really see into the nature of all of these experiences. Um, doubt is quite complex in many ways because uh, within the Buddhist teaching, there are many ways it's highly praised. Um, and then there are many ways in which it could be a problem. The Buddha, of course, is so famous for having said, don't believe anything. Don't believe anything just because I said it. Don't believe anything because a great elder has said it. Don't believe anything because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. And this, you know, this is what I was saying the first night, what I find so amazing um, about the worldview of the Buddha. It's like he's basically saying, you can find out what's true. You don't need to depend on me. You don't need to depend on anybody. You have the capacity to really understand your life, to really understand suffering, to really understand happiness. You can do this. Put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. And so there's a tremendous, um, not even a premium, it's like an insistence on asking, wondering, discovering, investigating, questioning. You must always you know, be willing to question everything. Because that's a way of putting something into practice. You know, and so that kind of doubt, which is resting on a confidence in one's own ability to see what's true, but being willing to take some risks, to immerse oneself, to put things into practice, um, is really very positive. The other kind of doubt is called speculative doubt, uh, which is something very different. And that's not the kind of doubt that allows us to come close to something, to question it, to put something into practice. It's much more like a standing back, being aloof. Um, It's a very cold kind of doubt. We might call it cynicism, where we're not willing to try. We're not willing to take a risk. Uh, We're not going to really put something into practice. We're just going to judge it from afar. And... So often, as we know, that kind of cynicism is a mask for some kind of fear where you know, we feel we will never really accomplish something, so we might as well disdain it. Um, and the, uh, the nature of it is very, very seductive. That quality of doubt doesn't arise with a kind of little sign on it that says, well, I'm doubt, you know? It arises almost with a little sign that says, I am brilliant truth. I am like the deepest revelation you will ever have, you know. This practice is worthless, or get out of this place, or, you know, whatever it might be. It could be anything. My favorite story about that kind of doubt, um, that speculative doubt actually comes from the time of the Buddha, where in the legend of the Buddha's enlightenment, he was, of course, as you know, uh, they say enlightened sitting under a tree, and he spent 48, 49 days in the vicinity of that tree, um, seven days doing walking meditation, seven days doing a contemplation on dependent origination, and so on. And 
Uh, so he did seven things for seven days each, and then at the end of that time, he got up and he began to walk um, to another town. And uh, as the legend goes, they say the first person who came upon him in that walk was so struck by his radiance that he said to him, who are you? Like, what are you? Are you a human being? Are you some kind of celestial being? Like, who are you? And it said that in response, the Buddha said, I am awake. I'm an awakened one. And the guy said, eh, maybe, and he walked away. So being from New York, I, you know, there's something in me that kind of appreciates that, eh, maybe. Like, why believe that? That's an outrageous thing to say, like, I am awake, you know. But what if he hadn't walked away? What if he'd stayed, you know, and asked a few more questions? Like, what does it mean to be awake? Is there a path? Can anybody follow this path? Could I be awake? You know, how do you do this? That would have been a very different kind of questioning, whether or not he walked away in the end. You know, so that sort of dismissal, the cynicism, the skeptical doubt keeps us from being able to try. And so it's a very difficult hindrance. It's not so difficult if we can recognize it for what it is. Um, and realize, well, you know, say it's something about a retreat experience, which is also very common. It's not an endless commitment. You don't have to spend the rest of your life here. Is it something you can do wholeheartedly for a short and definite period of time just to see and evaluate and assess at that point rather than every single instant that you're in the meditation hall? How am I doing? Is this good? I don't know. Is that loving kindness? Maybe it's not real love. Maybe it's just attachment. I don't know. It's just like, you know, things like that. (gasps) So it's that sense of willingness, of engagement, of participation for a distinct period of time, knowing that evaluation and assessment and criticism is also very important, but based on one's own experience, not just on certain assumptions. And so... Um, you know, again, these hindrances, it's grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Uh, they come very, very often in our practice because they come very, very often in, in our lives. They are, in many ways, they are like running this world. And we can see it, you know, and there's so much discord and so much suffering based on that. So we each have the opportunity as we are practicing to to really pay attention, to develop a different relationship to not just the wondrous and beautiful and joyful experiences that come our way, but to these as well. To be able to employ the quality of mindfulness as they come, rather than saying, well, these are like enemies or you know, these are a sign of defeat or failure, to use them as objects of interest, to really pay attention uh, to them as they come. And that will give us a, a path, it will give us a practice that really is about being free. Okay, let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com 
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.